and welcome to Casey Piper's Extraordinary People, the podcast where I sit down with someone with an extraordinary story to tell. However, at the moment, we're not exactly sitting down with each other. We're chatting from our own homes. Social distancing rules may be in place, but that is not stopping us. It's at times like this when we say, thank goodness for modern technology keeping us sane. So my guest this week, well, what can I say? He's multi-talented to say the least. He first came to our attention as part of the Brit Award-winning band Rudimental, storming the charts of huge hits like Feel the Love and Waiting All Night. Whilst continuing to make music, he's built up this incredible following online with his fitness tips, but also his general zest for life and positivity, which actually is exactly what a lot of us have been craving and needing lately. But on top of that, he has only just been crowned the winner of Celebrity SAS, Who Dares Wins. So please welcome to the podcast, Leon Roll, aka Locksmith Rudimental. Obviously, there's the obvious things that the public know about you in terms of your your talent, uh, your gift that you give to the world and, you know, what you do for a living. But more recently, you know, the public have seen you on Channel 4 in SAS, Who Dares Wins. And no. I was just like, wow. What do you think? It's really tough. Uh, it's really savage, oh. the show. Um, yeah, it's no playing games. No. And- uh, I've never done TV before. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but I have been behind the scenes on sets, mm-hmm. so I know how it goes. And there's someone always at hand and foot, can I have a cup of tea? Yep, sure, you can have a cup of tea. Oh, can we take a break from this? Yeah, can we take a break? <laughs> there is absolutely none of that mm-hmm. within this show. Um, from the moment you step on to uh, the island, it's literally someone with an envelope. Where is, where is the island? Uh, it's Inverness. Sky? Oh, wow. So it's freezing cold Scotland. Oh, mate, freezing. We filmed it what, in October, mm-hmm. so it was even worse. So, yeah, freezing cold. And you gave so your phone in. There. That's even worse. Someone there to give, yeah, <laughs> take your phone straight away. And we haven't even got into sort of the, the meaty bit of the show. It's literally we have a couple days to relax and mm-hmm. just acclimatise to uh, your surroundings and whilst they get everything ready. And uh, yeah, they took your phones off straight from there. Was that so, hard? Yeah, you're in a bubble. But we're all like, I mean, when I suppose I speak for myself, like I'm so addicted to my phone and so dependent on being mm. connected. Was it a weird feeling not to have your phone? Again, it's it's pretty similar to the situation we're in now. Mm-hmm. You know, that choice element. You know, we're on a restriction. So mm-hmm. as soon as that phone was taken from me, it was like. Wait a minute, that's not my that's not my choice. So it was it, it did become hard. Yeah. But don't tell him this, but I'm a bit smarter than the rest. I bought a burner phone because I, I was expecting <laughs> something like this. Oh my <laughs> Are you kidding me? But how did what one of the tiny tiny ones? <clears throat> no, I got two phones, so I just I just gave them one and kept the the other. Oh my god. And then when I finally went into the show, when I finally like, you know, had to go in for recruitment. I, I gave him the other phone. Oh, so you fessed up and told them? I'm lying, I didn't. I just I just <laughs> left it in my suitcase. <laughs> I thought we'd got like a massive exclusive then on the podcast. It's like, this is excellent. <laughs> no, but I did have a burner phone. That That is an exclusive. And I haven't told no one that. I wouldn't even tell Ant that now. I'm so scared of him. Yeah, he is scary, isn't he? 
yeah, he is scary, but he's he's a cool guy, man. And uh, it's mad because as soon as you start the show, I'm friends with Ant, so I've I've made a big slip up. I've said, "All right, Ant, all right, I'll get it done, Ant." And he said, "Who are you calling, Ant?" <laughs> you were actually the winner, right? Yes, you won yeah. the series. I mean, that that's an amazing achievement to win that no, series. Like you said, it's not fake. It's it's all real, isn't it? Oh, mate, it's, it is all real. And I couldn't stress that point more. It's it's crazy because you go through so much and mm-hmm. to be told that you've passed, um, saying that I've won, it doesn't feel like you've won, you know, because you don't come out with, I don't know. It's just like you're there, you're overwhelmed, you've gone through so much stress throughout the whole show, mm-hmm. so much anxiety, you know. Mm-hmm. There's points where you just don't sleep because you're waiting for a knock on the door. You're waiting for someone to come shout. You tell you to get up. So on edge. So on edge throughout the whole show, throughout the whole eight days that you're on the show. It's not good for you, surely. <laughs> <laughs> like so much fight or flight constantly. Like... You no, know, it, it literally is. It literally is. But when you get to the end of it and you're told that, oh, you passed recruitment, that overwhelming feeling, just I, I just broke down in tears. I didn't I didn't have no words. I didn't know if I was happy, didn't know if I was sad. I was yeah. just like, maybe I was like, thank God it's over. But yeah. it was a great feeling, an amazing feeling. So how did you find out you won? Did they literally just come up to you and, and say, this is it, you've won the show, you've passed? Yeah, so for those of you that watch the show, you probably you know what's, what happens. But uh, for the last bit of the show, you're in interrogation. Mm-hmm. And that lasts for about 12 hours. And we're talking what, what about... What is interrogation being, then? What yeah, so we're talking about being blindfolded. Um, you've got headphones in your ears and you're hearing all different types of sounds from babies crying to um, people scratching on the walls to high-frequency uh, sounds. And then you're taken out of that and you're put in stress positions whilst you're listening to these things. And then you're interrogated by these actors, but they're not actually actors. They're actually sort of people that have served. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're going in on you to find out if you can break. So what, by insulting you? Yeah, insulting you. You're given a covered story um, and you've got to keep to that cover story Mm -hmm. until you believe that it's life-threatening so you have to come clean. What sort of um, stuff so yeah. did they say to you? Give give me an example of things they said. Oh, <laughs> well, you know what? To be fair, my my interrogators were pleasantly okay until we got to one point where they were getting frustrated with the lies that we were telling them, mm-hmm. um, and I was getting barbaric abuse, um, just getting sworn at, you know, getting gripped up <laughs> more or less off my feet. Oh and wow! At one point. At one point, um, there was, uh, they put me in a box. Right. And I'm talking like a box you can't move in. It's a, you have to squeeze yourself in it. And you have to sit in there and you're blindfolded and you're hearing all the sounds. And, and then mm-hmm. they put me in another box and it was like, it wasn't a box actually, it was a cage. They put you in a cage. And mm-hmm. I could literally, the only way of me, only way of me getting into the cage was by being on my hands and knees. Right, okay. Like a dog. Mm-hmm. So it's like a dog cage. Um, yeah, and they'll be screaming abuse from all angles and they're trying to sort of like dig up bits about you and use it against you to try and break you to um, make you come clean and get out of this lie. So I got through that. 
I got through that. Not a lot did. They dro- like a lot of uh, the recruits dropped like flies. And so when you uh, say they dropped like flies, what they burst into tears or they just they tapped out? Um, yeah, tapped out. Um, or they were told that you know you're not going to go any further on this because it was having some sort of psychological effect on you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, luckily or unluckily for myself at the time, yeah, they they didn't say that to me. But um, once you get through that 12 hours of hard interrogation, mm-hmm. um, they whittle you down. So it wasn't just me that passed. It was uh, another woman called Lauren, who's a Paralympica. Yeah, yeah. I was on Strictly with her. She's an amazing woman. She's, yes. She's yeah, very yeah, yeah. Um, focused and disciplined and determined. Yeah. Yeah. Coming from an athletic background, it's just holds you in good stead mm-hmm. um, and with everything she's gone through as well within her life it's just mm-hmm. crazy to see her on top form with myself um, especially yeah. the fact that we got on so well yeah um, from from the get-go um, so yeah that, that that was a beautiful feeling to have both of us um, together stand up on the edge of the edge of a cliff because they take you from interrogation and they uh-huh. drag you through the woods and you can't see nothing. You're tripping over all over the gaff and you're thinking, oh, we're gonna we're gonna be put through another beast in and then they just unravel it and That's it. Tell you that you've passed. Oh, the, no yeah. wonder you cried, the relief that it's over. Oh and... mate, the relief from the first day, I can honestly say that it doesn't get any easier. Mm-hmm. It literally just gets harder and harder. And you had these days where you're so positive about everything because mm-hmm. you, you might have done well a particular day and then something yeah. comes along and you're you absolutely rubbish at it. So it was a roller coaster of emotions, um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. When you won, did it change your confidence? Because to, to that extreme level, to be berated and tortured like that and know you're resilient enough to get through it, has has it been life changing in that way of your your self belief? Yeah, I, I would always say that I've had strong self belief for myself. You know that was installed in me from my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, she always taught me to believe in myself. You know, if you want to go out and get something, you work hard for it. You be consistent and determined enough, you get. Mm-hmm. Um, so that self belief um, vibe was always there. So it wasn't that for me. But something else did surprise me that I didn't actually think I would gain from passing the SAS. Because you felt that, that you was, were you didn't have anything to gain or you Not because I didn't feel like I had anything to gain, it's just I buried a lot of shit deep down inside me. Mm-hmm. And like you said, they they strip you back to build you back up again. And when I got stripped back I realised there was a lot of underlying issues that I didn't realise I had before. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of father issues that right. I, I kind of buried and I um, I never ever really wanted to resurface. And it showed in all my negative outbursts and the negative stuff that I used to do within my life. Mm-hmm. And I didn't face it head on. And coming out of or going through the SAS and coming out of it, really taught me you know what you have to come confront these things mm-hmm. you have to you have to be able to talk openly about it to get to get through these things and uh yeah 
So did you... That's that's what surprised me. So after the show, did you go and have therapy? Did you have any kind of like action point where you thought... I was like, after the show, that eight days was full of therapy. Yeah. (laughs) I couldn't couldn't stress that enough. It really was, you know. As much as the DSs come across um, sort of like mean and, you know, they're all about a beast and Mm -hmm. they do genuinely care and they do know how to read people very, very well. Yeah. Um, and with that said, when you're actually talking to them and, you know, they're having um, a conversation with you, they're, they're saying things that make you think about yourself, make yeah. you evaluate yourself, put you in situations to make you um, start opening up your mind to why am I reacting this way? Mm-hmm. Why am I doing things this way? And mm-hmm. for me, that whole eight days was like, I've never had therapy, but what I'd imagine of therapy probably like 12 months crammed into eight days yeah they fast-tracked you basically yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah, in quite a brutal way but yeah 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 no definitely and I would definitely encourage anybody um who you know who's going through some shit to Mm. take on something like that a challenge like that outside your comfort zone because the way you feel afterwards yeah you do have a in a confidence that you can achieve yeah. more than more than the average because of what you've been through. Because most people fear um, failure, rejection. Um, yeah. You know, it's all these kind of things that hold us back from being the people we want to be. So mm. when life hits you with some kind of trauma and you do come out the other side, it actually um, changes your self-esteem to know actually whatever happens, whether it's through through man or natural occurrence, I'll be able to to bounce back. Um, and, and knowing, oh, totally. yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You touched on your past and mm-hmm. that, that's the interesting thing about you. You're very successful. You've, you've done lots of things and you're still quite young. You know, you're only 33. Um, but you've got that yep. East, East London accent. You're from Hackney originally, right? <laughs> yeah, Hackney, East London. <laughs> so how does somebody from Hackney go on to win a Brit, a Mobo? You didn't have this silver spoon life. What what was life like for you in the, in the beginning, as you, like your childhood? Ah, oh, you know, I had a great childhood. You know, I had a risky childhood growing up where I grew up, but it was fun. Was um, there was there gang culture where you grew up? Yeah. So look, let me start from the very beginning, um, especially the rudimental story because it is my story. R- rudimental. We were we grew up in East London Hackney, uh, three of the four, three out of the four of us, um, and I met the members when we were about five years old, and we grew up sharing a passion for football and mm. music, um, and I always say that football and music saved my life because it gave me a focus um, rather than staying on the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, before. Anything before before I knew what love was, all I wanted to do was become a footballer. Yeah, Which is a... that is quite common for lots of young boys, yeah, isn't it? Of That's course. a lot like, of boys' yeah. dream and... around the world, not just in the UK, around the world, you know. We say mm-hmm. boys and girls um dreams to become a, a professional footballer. Mm-hmm. Um I felt that I was a little bit better than the average. Um I had the privilege of being an Arsenal scholar. Um, wow okay so that that was my passion before I knew what love was before the birth of my son before I fell in love with my first girlfriend Mm -hmm. I fell in love with football 
and that's that's where my heart was before even music. Right. However, music and football ran parallel t- together. So I went through my teenage years trying to live that dream and it didn't come. You know, so the success to... rate is like, yeah, the success rate is like 0.01% make it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was, uh, I felt a huge amount of rejection from that and I didn't know how to deal with it at the time. Because that's a big blow. If, you, if you've based your life around something and then it doesn't happen, like that's a big blow. No, it is. It's horrible. It's mm-hmm. a horrible feeling, especially if you're extremely passionate about it, mm-hmm. you know. And the kind of person I am, the... I'm a, I'm a fighter. Mm-hmm. So, and that was installed into me from my mother, you know. She was a single uh, single parent who didn't really have that much money mm-hmm. when I was born, at least. She managed to go on to get a degree and become a school teacher. Right, okay. I remember, I remember when we moved into our house in Hackney, we were literally sleeping on the floor because... We couldn't afford, you know, a mattress or whatnot for the first month, I think it was. So you were surviving even back then? Yeah, even back then. And yeah. just watching my mum do that on her own, you know, it was forever imprinted in me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, just that whole mentality of it's not given to you, you're going to have to go out and get there, get it yourself and earn it yourself, is, in, is installed to me. That's the kind of fight I have. So although I got a rejection for football, mm-hmm. I managed to come out the other side with a bit of music. Now, the streets of London is such a melting pot for creativity and you name it, it has it. Especially so East, just, living in Hackney, especially, yeah. Especially East London, definitely. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be biased, so I'm glad you said it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, growing up on the streets of East London, I um, surrounded myself with my boys that I've grown up with since I was five years old. And we all shared the same interests and we just managed to hustle away. And there were, there were points where I just didn't want to do this no more because it wasn't, it wasn't getting to the heights that I thought it was getting to. What, and what was that for you? To. What did you view as, because everyone has a point where when I get to hear this is success, like what was your goalpost at that point? At that point was to make it a job. Mm-hmm. A job. Make so a living. Could, yeah, feed my family. I was working... Um, Two jobs, one is a learning mentor and mm-hmm. another one is uh, working in the supermarket at the time. Mm-hmm. As well as playing very, some... Very important football. job, very important job right now. They're the people no, that are like the yeah, pillars, yeah, exactly. pillars of and the community at the moment. I actually fell out with a head teacher because he felt that there wasn't a need for, you know, learning mentors mm-hmm. um, within schools, which it couldn't be so far wrong, especially with the gang culture and everything that's going on now. Yeah, so doing these things, you know, being a mentor um, and, you know, going to a supermarket and working, it illustrates what you learned from your mum, where a mm-hmm. job is, a job is a job and there is pride in providing, there is pride in working with, mm-hmm. you know, like, like for me, I was brought up that whatever job you're doing, um, it, it's about getting out there and doing it. It's not about where it mm-hmm. is or, you know, and, that, and that's better than doing nothing and waiting for stuff to come to you. So you had a positive role model in your mum. You know, you had mm-hmm. this great network with your friends who went on to be friends for life and your bandmates. You know, you, you don't mention much about your father. So who who was your male role models? Yeah, I was, 
it's a mad one because I always wanted it to be my father up until this day. Mm-hmm. Still deal with issues about that now. I remember I had to call him up about the SAS because I started talking to, I started talking about him on TV, so I needed to get his approval. Right, okay. And, it, you know, um, he was like, oh, that's just water under the bridge. And I'm like, it's water under the bridge we ain't dealt with yet. Yeah. But and that's quite dismissive. We will do that's, that's dismissive yeah. of your feelings, isn't it? That's quite a no, hard. No, it, it is. But at the same time, uh, I should be able to come out and speak about it with him and I struggle. I have a mental block. Mm. I don't know where it is. Um, we pretend that nothing's there. You know? Well, it's pain, isn't it? No, it is. And it's hard to break through that, but I'm getting better at it. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. The fertility doctor, Jan Karbat, was renowned for getting amazing results. Women who were desperate for children would visit him at his Rotterdam clinic. Many would leave pregnant. But when the clinic closed, rumours circulated about the methods the doctor used to achieve his success. My name's Jenny Kleeman, and I've been investigating what happened in Karbat's clinic. It's the story of a doctor who was determined to create life by any means possible. The Immaculate Deception, a brand new podcast from something else, coming on March 18th, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm thinking about, so I've got two daughters, right? I've got a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, yep. And I do all the weekend stuff with them, like taking them to singing classes, taking them to dance Amazing. classes. Yeah, and I, <laughs> and I love it. Like, you know, if I'm thinking about what is happiness and what is fulfillment, like in this lockdown, mm. I think actually that is my purpose to, to be their mom, to raise them. I want them to have an amazing life as an adult. And I'm, in, I'm enjoying, you know, that's the one thing I'm enjoying about lockdown is I'm similar to you. I'm always away. I'm always working. And my kids are loving it. They don't want lockdown to end. They're literally like, don't go back to London. Yeah. And I'm thinking about you growing up with these huge ambitions around football. Who did all the driving to football? Who, who encouraged you? Who stood on the sideline? Who helped you choose the shin pads? Like who was it? Yeah. See, so that's, that's one of the biggest things in my life. That person wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always battled with that. I always struggled with that. And how did I do it? I did it off my own back. I hustled um, at a young age, you know, mm-hmm. wherever I could. Um, I would travel to football by myself. My mum could only do so much. She had two other kids to look after. Yeah, and work and everything else. And work, yeah. get a degree and the rest mm-hmm. of it. Um, but in terms of doing all that stuff, I had to have that pick up and go that drive myself um in order to get to these places and that was that was hard for me extremely hard but I did it and I I, for the life of me I can't remember how it could have been anything from like I don't know bumping a bus yeah yeah, just jumping on the back you know just jumping on a bus Do, do you know like lots of us reflect on all different things in our life 
of that, you know, if this had been this way, would things have turned out like that? And that that's the scenario you, you play out. Yeah, totally. Totally. But at the same time, it's, I'm a heavy believer. Everything happens for a reason. And mm. my dad not being part of my life is for a reason. Well, mm-hmm. my early years, definitely for a yeah. reason, you know. And it's well, I was gonna get to where I am now, really. That's the question I was going to ask you, because when people interview me, that's sometimes the summary that annoys me. So some people mm. will say to me, oh, aren't you glad um, everything that happened to you because now you're successful and you wouldn't be here if, if that hadn't happened to you. And mm. I, I think that's such lazy journalism and, and so insulting to your pain. Because I think... Yeah, yeah, totally. Do you think anyone wishes to um, go through the most painful experience emotionally, physically, to just mm. acquire wealth? Like, you know, that w- it's such a strange analogy, but it shows you how like a capitalist society thinks that the most important yeah. thing is to be rich. And no matter how much you endured to get there, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. But what we see of you on SAS is this... <laughs> You're, you are not breakable, but it's this inability to, yes, you show emotion. Yes, you cry. Yes, you struggle. But ultimately you, you come through it and you have this level of resilience that a lot of people don't have. And, you know, people that follow you on Instagram, you'll see that on your videos. You know, you post a lot of fitness videos, a lot of gym videos and you're nuts. Like you're totally nuts. Like you just go running with your son and you're like training your son to do like 5K, 10K. And then you're doing all these crunches on the bar. And it's like, there's this extra level of human spirit inside you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, do we all have to go through pain to get that? So like for me, I definitely, it's a a sad, it's a sad realization because for me, I did have to go through pain to get that because Mm -hmm. I think, for my experience, I don't think I had that or I hadn't had to tap into it. So, you know, people that are listening now might not necessarily have a specific trauma they can go back to, but they might be coasting through life. They might be struggling. You know, how have you always been this way? How did, how did you become this person? Through rejection, mm. through being told that, you know, you're not good enough. You can't do what I wanted to do. Being told all those things always made me feel that I have something to prove to someone. And I think it started off when I was really, really young. You know, I remember I must have been about 13 and I had an incident um, in my area, you know, and it made me feel a bad way. So basically I got into a fight. Right. And... You were attacked or you attacked someone? What was the... No, no, no. I've never, ever, ever, ever attacked someone. Um, I've never started a fight. Um, But I've definitely finished one. (laughs) Finished a few. (laughs) But, but, um, yeah, no, basically it was... um, I was hanging around with my mates and a group of boys had beef with someone else and I, I managed to get in the middle of it and I got rushed and... I actually broke broke my foot. Right, And okay. when I broke my foot, that kind of stopped me from doing everything that I wanted to do for a little while, which was a mm-hmm. very, very hard time for myself. And did you have any belief then at that point, like spiritual, religious? Did you believe in any guidance? or? No, I really didn't. But I, I had this inner belief that once sort of like the dust settled, I'm going to do everything in my power 
to achieve my goals. So I remember yeah. on my 13th birthday, my birthday's on Christmas Day. And what a crap birthday. I'm sorry, I'd hate that. It's <laughs> the birthday in the world. Yeah. You have to share with the whole world and And Jesus. Yeah, and him as well. <laughs> Big <laughs> guy to compete with. <laughs> yeah, it was tough. Not the best day, but I'm sure there's yeah. a lot of others out there with it. But um yeah, it was Christmas Day is my birthday. The streets are quiet and I would wake up at six o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. 13 years old, and I'll go for a run, like a proper hard run on my birthday on Christmas Day, the day that you're meant to be eating what you like, doing what you yeah, like. And chilling. X, Y, Z. Chilling, yeah. <laughs> my mum used to say, you're crazy, but if that's what you want, go out and get it. And when I was running... All I could think of was my dad, all the negative situations I've been in, all the teachers telling me that I'm never going to amount to anything. Mm-hmm. Um, not having a male role model um, and just not being where I wanted to be mm-hmm. at that particular age. Or thinking, when you're a teenager, you don't know where you are. You're kind of lost. And you're constantly yeah. trying to find yourself, you know. And, and I it's was hard trying to find myself. Expected. You know, you end school and you're yeah. supposed to know this is it. You're 16. What do you want to do for the rest of your life? You don't yeah, even know exactly. what's out there. Yeah. So it's to answer your question, is it inbuilt in us or can we grow it? I, I think it's something you can grow. Mm-hmm. It's just you have to have that determination and desire. Um, you need to have that inside you. And it needs to come from something. It needs to grow from somewhere. And mm. mine grew from just having rejection at an early age. And yeah. it wasn't just through sports, it wasn't through music at this time. It was more through not having that father role model, which was a big, big issue for me. So when people talk about mindset, they often refer to reframing their thoughts. Um, are yeah. you now able to look back on those times and reframe it as, well, they, that was the building blocks to becoming the man I am today. That was the motivation. Are you able to reframe it into, I don't want to say positive because that demeans it, but into just the essential foundations that you needed? Yeah, I guess so. And I, I guess, well, I believe that everyone has to do that at some point. They need to look back and they need to look at it and deal with whatever issues that they've gone through. And yeah, I mm. I've got a tattoo on my right arm that says Leonidas is my saviour. That's my firstborn. And he right, can okay. come at a better time, you know. And I, I wanted him for selfish reasons because I wanted to yeah. give him everything that I didn't have. So, See, I wouldn't say yeah. it's a selfish reason to have a child because I think everybody has children um, for different reasons at different stages uh-huh. in their life. You know, yeah, yeah, so- yeah. Some people wrongly base it on finances or stability that when I earn this much or when I've got this house, then I'll start a family. And I don't think children reflect on their, when they grow up, they don't reflect on their life that they didn't have a utility room or that they didn't have an electric gate on their drive. Um, Like even my daughter in the lockdown, like normally I take her to different places, like we'll go to the farm, we'll go to theme parks. And I said to her, are you not bored? Are you not sick of me? And she was like, no. I said, you don't miss going to all the places you go to. She was like, no, I love staying at home in the garden with you. And you yeah, just realise, yeah, that's it. You're the most valuable currency to them. Um, oh, mate, and it's just be there. That's yeah. all you've got to do as a parent, be there. But we mustn't overlook how hugely successful you are, you know, with, you. like you said, you, you, didn't, you didn't make it to where you wanted to in football, but... 
in my eyes, you've gone on to have a better career because it has more longevity. Um, it's, yeah. it's much more creative. Um, mm-hmm. you know, if as an artist, you, you nourish other people's soul, you give back more than say a, a football player would. Yeah, you can say that. You got to be careful. I think so. though. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean don't get me wrong. A football player is an amazing job, but I don't, yeah. do you not think there's more substance to connecting with your audience through artistry and and what you do? It's so hard for me to say that because I am a diehard football fan, <laughs> and the joy, the joy that footballers, my football team, give me, mm. um, is amazing. And I don't have enough time to watch them live. Yeah. So, for some people, they feed off that they look forward to that that is by the end of the week I'm going to watch the Arsenal that's what I live for you know from Monday to Friday as soon as Saturday comes that's my day and that's the joy and that's you know the beauty of it so yeah I feel like there is some sort of substance there in terms of a football and a football team footballer Mm -hmm. and a football team um I hear what you're saying though in terms of what I've done the longevity you're right um I'm 33 now I would have been retiring from football. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have been and over. Unless you're, it would have been over. So unless I'm at the top level, um, I still would have to work after mm-hmm. my retirement. Um, so, yeah, you've got that longevity side of it. And I definitely, I, I truly believe that music is an emotional thing mm-hmm. you know, for everyone. And when you get stopped in the, in the supermarket and someone stops me, which it doesn't happen very often because we're not the face of our music. But when it does happen, it comes from a genuine place. People stop me and they say, I absolutely love your music. Yeah. And your music has got me through X, Y, Z. Rather than, oh, you're a handsome lad. <laughs> you're part of but, that band Rudimental. <laughs> but now it's going to be like, you're the crazy guy off the SAS program that won, that oh, was geez. born out and shouted at in the box. <laughs> It's going to be a different I, I, level. Oh, no, it, I, I hope not. And something that I was very worried and cautious about doing, I always said that I'll never do reality TV because mm-hmm. I love my own privacy. Um, yeah. I'm fortunate enough to make a living, not of how sexy I am, because I am sexy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but because because of the music that we make and the music does the talking. When people see me on stage... They think loud, confidence, um, life with a party. Mm-hmm. That's that's who Locksmith is. Yeah, but do you know when people talk about that, when famous people talk about, you know, Beyonce says she has Sasha Fierce when she's on stage and that's her persona. When people mm. talk about it, you think, well, actually, if you think about somebody that, say, works in for a corporate company in an office, you don't act the same as you do in your private life at your work. Everybody has a persona, everybody has a professional life. So yeah. why would somebody who, his job is on stage, why would they be any different? You know, it's, it's, it's quite I never looked at it like that, to be fair. I feel like you're somebody that's got quite a balance in terms of you're honest about when you are happy and when you're not happy. And you seem to have this really good medication that is your gym. You know, you call it, yeah, you yeah, call yeah. it Lockheed's therapy, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, and no, Totally. Obviously, we, we've met once before, before this recording, and we met at a gym 
Um, and I yes. was, I was so scared to train with you. Um, and I'm, so, I'm somebody that trains like five sometimes. Why? You're a beast though, girl. Like no, you I... held your own. I was so surprised. I was like, you know what? She's got a lot of strength, not only physically, but mentally. Cause you wouldn't give up. And you yeah, I couldn't. Everything. And you more than kept up. I couldn't have you beat me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not trying to undermine you. You, you generally were out there with me. Well, I guess it's an interesting conversation because actually it does go back to the mindset and the mentality, yeah, totally. you know. Exactly. Um, and if I look at everything you've done and, and now, you know, you're so honest and transparent on Instagram, you know, you talk about using the training. Do you think it's something that other people, you know, how could they incorporate that into their life? Do, do you, I, I feel like you're not one of those Instagrammers that's like, hey guys, I love exercise and here's me waking up wanting to exercise every day. I feel like some days you don't want to, but you go and do it. Totally. to save you in that sense it's just an amazing medication you know um it's an escapism that people don't understand that we need in our lives and i think more now with the current situation that we're in people are starting to actually understand that exercising keeping healthy physically active is extremely important not only for mm-hmm. you physically but for you mentally yeah um we live in we live in this glass bubble that we call the world, you know. It's not that big, you know. We, we can't reach out to everyone and do whatever we want. So we need to escape sometimes so that when we do come back into reality, we can deal with it better. And there's no better way of doing that than exercising. Where mm-hmm. I've had so much negativity um, mm-hmm. work. There was a particular situation, album two. Right. Um, we were battling against you know, the powers that be for for the way we wanted to... That the direction we, Yeah, the direction we wanted to go with our careers. And it wasn't just that, but there was other things going on um, mm-hmm. mentally that I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you what it was, but it's just feelings that I had inside me. And yeah. I was driving home at one point. I've, I've said this story a couple of times on different podcasts and interviews. So now I feel a little bit more confident about telling the story, but... Mm-hmm. At the time, I didn't tell no one for a couple of months. I was driving home mm-hmm. and I was about six minutes away from my house. And out of nowhere, I just started bursting into tears. It was right. Proper sobbing, you know, actual tears. Actual tears. Mm-hmm. You know, the only way I can describe the, the kind of tears that I was having, I don't know if, if people have been through this, but when I was younger, you know, um, my mum was telling me off and she told me to go to my room. I ran to my room and I cried into my yeah. pillow. And you know that kind of cry where... A loud one, yeah. A loud one and you, you can't, can't breathe. breathe and no. You take your head off the pillow and, you know, there's all snot everywhere. Yeah. So, it's <laughs> it like an Oscar snotty. award winning cry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the realest cry you could cry. Um, <laughs> that was the point in my life where I said to myself, you've got some shit to deal with, mm-hmm. you know. Talk to someone. Right. I end up... And I still didn't talk to anyone. I, I acknowledged it. I still didn't talk to no one. Why didn't you? Because what? I'm a man. Because I'm a man, Katie. That's why. That's so built-in shame from society, basically. Exactly. And and sometimes, you know, for people listening that might be going through some kind of depression or it just feels so stagnant in such a place that mm. isn't isn't changing you know, every day, you know, that feeling when you dread waking up, that actually mm. there, there is a relief in talk. It doesn't have to be a therapist. You know, you're talking about talking to a friend that actually with mm. each word, the burden 
became less and less. And, you know, let's not, let's not forget, you had some pretty euphoric moments. Like whilst I've been researching you and I've been kind of stalking you online for this episode. Of course you have. have. (laughs) Or just before the episode in general. (laughs) I've seen you do amazing things. I've seen you at Glastonbury and and I've looked at you and thought, wow, look at this guy. Like the the feelings you must have got from doing those things. And, you know, we're talking about moments of despair here. We're talking about moments of depression, but there's these iconic moments that run through the spine of who you are Mm. and and what Mm. kind of hold your journey together. And some of the people that are listening might be feeling like you felt that night in the car when you couldn't stop crying and Mm. they don't know what's thereafter. They, they don't know the euphoric moments yet, but they are there for everyone. They don't have to just be there for people that are constantly happy or had a privileged upbringing. Tell, tell me one of the most euphoric moments you've had. As that, I mean, childbirth, that's amazing, becoming a father. But what about in rudimental? That's a given, eh? Yeah. Mm. Euphoric moments. It's been, there, to be honest, there have been so many. Mm-hmm. Um, so many sort of like out-of-body experiences where you're either on stage and you're thinking to yourself, is this actually happening? Yes, it is. It's happening to you. Quite surreal. Surreal moments, yeah. I, I think you've you've hit one. I, I'm going to go and say the Glastonbury show where we didn't get to finish because right, for me okay. that was like that was like the Champions League moment. So it was just ah, oh, it was it was beautiful. So when we come off stage and we had to come off stage, I felt like my Champions League moment had been stripped from me. Oh no. And, <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. The more I think about it and the more we talk about this podcast, I do cry a lot, don't I? So yeah, that's I ended good. Up you're, you're not emotionally <laughs> dead. You're you're connected, yeah, you're alive. No, like, definitely. But you know, I think what I really want to summarize with what you've taught me is myself included, you, lots of other people, we seek validation from external sources, right? So whether mm-hmm. it's we're desperate for certain people to want us, to like us, to give us opportunity to have been there in our past, to have been part of our family, whether it's for likes on Instagram followers, there's always some kind of validation that we become obsessed with that we Uh think will make us the people we want to be or make us happier. But you, in my eyes and lots of people's eyes, you've become hugely successful. You've given back to loads of people. You've touched their lives. You talk about that moment on Glastonbury and maybe the younger you, the validation from the person you were seeking, they could never have got you to there. They never could have yeah. taken, they could never have taken you to there. I think that's when you hold the most power, when you can say, I don't need anyone to validate me. Mm. And then no, you know, totally. you're quite a powerful person. Like they talked about on SAS, people being dangerous people, people being indestructible, people being powerful. And, you know, when everything happened to me, I kind of lost what is a lot of women's strongest currency. You know, I became disfigured. My appearance totally changed. And all the people I thought I needed to fancy me or admire me um, blocked me, didn't call me anymore. I didn't see them. And in a way, some people will say to me, like, you're an intimidating person. And I think, yeah, I am because I don't need any of you for validation. And that scares a lot of people because that's so powerful, though, right? Mm -hmm. It's really powerful. So my summary of you is you're powerful, you're in control, and you have everything you need. And I don't even mean that about your career. I mean it Mm. about in the heights you've taken yourself and that everything else in the past, you can put it to bed because it wasn't what you were looking for. You just romanticized it and you made it that, but it wasn't. 
because you are enough and you got yourself to there and that's where yeah, we are I, today you know can i hire you out for like one hour a week <laughs> I'm so I just, expensive. I just, I, just, <laughs> I just, I just need to hear those kind of things. No, it's been so great to talk to you, and I want to oh, thank bless. you. Likewise, definitely. You've been so honest. Thank you for being you, and it was wonderful to to hear the real you. Thank you for having us on. Thanks for listening to Casey Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.